Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Well, uh, let's exchange greetings this morning. Good morning. If you haven't already, I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Jan, thank you for reading. Tori and Grace, thanks for leading us in in singing um, together. While you're turning there, I'm just going to continue this posture of worship. Uh, We know that the Lord is uh, the best teacher of the scriptures, and uh, so I just want to go and ask him together to to lead us and to, to teach us. So Father, we are thankful for your word that even as it's read over us, um, Spirit, we know that you are doing something and you are not going to let this return void. And as we sing your praises, Lord, as we remind ourselves through prayer, through scripture, through song, that you are the only king forever, I pray that our hearts would be attuned to that. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would stir and shake our hearts so that sin and idols and the things of this world would be more easily seen. They would lose their grip in your presence. So Holy Spirit, we, we open the door of our hearts and we ask that you, you come in and you work and you move, and you convict. Father, in this next hour or so, as we continue to worship you, I ask that we would no longer make excuses. We would no longer fill our minds and hearts with stuff, with busyness, with purposelessness. But Father, we would, we would fill it with you. And we ask that you'd give us the strength to respond to the news that you are king. Father, we acknowledge you are king and we pray that our lives would reflect our lips, that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. We pray all these things in your powerful son's name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As you know, we are going through the gospel according to Matthew, and our subtitle is The Kingdom of Heaven. The Kingdom of Heaven. Now, a few things about this phrase, Kingdom of Heaven. We mentioned that it's uh, used from Jesus' own mouth almost 30 times. It's used in the gospel as a whole over 50 times, which means that if it's used that many times in Matthew, it's probably an important theme in Matthew. Now, there are two implications that this phrase has, Kingdom of Heaven. Heaven. The first implication is that there's other kingdoms, that there's a kingdom of earth, right? If there's a kingdom of heaven, that means there's also a kingdom of earth. In the biblical imagination, that's the world. There's the heavens and there's the earth. Now, I want to be very clear. uh, When the Bible uses the word heaven, it does not mean that like really, really blissful place that your soul departs to and goes when you die and your body is just, you know, dead and decaying and then that's it. Rather, what it means is that it's God's presence. Heaven is just the space that God dwells, God's place, God's presence, 
God's will is done there. In the, in the kingdom of heaven, in the heavens, God's will is done there. So whenever God speaks, that's what happens. It's a kingdom we see from the scriptures where the last are first and the first are last. It's a kingdom that's uh, opposed to the kingdoms of earth where we make ourselves kings. So whenever we say the word heaven, the biblical imagination has this idea of, of God's space. That's why Genesis 1 and 2, heaven and earth are one. Why? Because God's presence, God's space, is, is synonymous with and with in sync with humans' space. Sin obviously separated that. So, but the fact that we say kingdom of heaven means that there are other kingdoms, right? Namely, kingdoms of earth. And these are kingdoms where we make ourselves king, right? Uh, kingdoms of earth can be a few different things. It could be like, you know, a, an actual like national political entity, right? You think of um, Assyria, Babylon, Rome, Greece, uh, Germany, Russia, China, America. Like there are, there are a lot of kingdoms of earth. Like they can be national political entities. They can also be uh, what I like to call the isms of the day, which are like ideas. Like um, you have secularism, postmodernism, individualism, capitalism, you know, utilitarianism, altruism. Like all of these isms, what are they? They're kingdoms, but they're, they're, they're ideas. They're presenting themselves to you as ways to live wanting you to pledge allegiance to them and to devote your life to them and promising satisfaction, promising happiness, promising all the answers that we want in this life. Those are the kingdoms of earth. What every single one of these kingdoms of earth has in common is that we are our own king. We are our own king. It's my way or it's not. It, it, I get to do what I want. I get to decide what I want. And so that means, by, by, by definition, the kingdom of heaven... God's space is up there. That means the kingdoms of earth are what? With pre without the presence of God. God is not there. And so these two things are diametrically opposed to one another. And this leads to the second uh, implication of this phrase, kingdom of heaven. First, if there's a kingdom of heaven, that means there's kingdoms of earth. The second implication is what? If there's a kingdom, it requires a king. A kingdom requires a king. And like I said, in the kingdoms of earth, we try to make ourselves God. We try to make ourselves king, but what does it mean that there's a kingdom of heaven? It means that there is a king, one king. And the kingdom of heaven, God's presence, God's space, God's reign, God's rule, is always diametrically opposed to the kingdoms of earth, unless what? There's a king who is king of both heaven and of earth. And then those two, when they submit to each other, there's one king to rule them all. Now, this is why, uh, this is why the, the news that Jesus is king is simultaneously the most glorious and peaceful news ever and the most threatening news ever. It's the most glorious and peaceful news because if we say Jesus is king of both heaven and of earth and we submit ourselves, we, we, we remove ourselves from the throne of our hearts, we submit ourselves to his kingship, then that kingdom of heaven is ours a kingdom of peace, of justice, of mercy, of selflessness, of love, of no more sickness. That, that is ours. But if we, if we do not submit ourselves and humble ourselves to the king of heaven and earth, then that means that Jesus will relentlessly assault the idols of our hearts. This is why there's a, a French theologian, I don't actually know how to pronounce it, but I think it's Pasquier Kessner or something. He says this, Christ is the peace of the righteous, 
and he's the trouble of the wicked. When we submit ourselves to his lordship, his kingship, he is our peace. And if we don't, he will relentlessly assault the kings that we put on our hearts. This is why in a little uh, more fun terms, Mr. Beaver from the Chronicles of Narnia, when Lucy asks, is Aslan safe? He says this, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the king. Jesus as king threatens those of us who think that we are in charge because what he does is he exposes our true conditions. And ironically, we're going to see later today that religion and power serve as wonderful disguises to hide our own failures. We love to put ourselves on the throne of our hearts and then disguise it in religion and power. The only way for these two kingdoms to be reconciled together is if there's a king of both heaven and earth. The next question is, who is this king? Who is this king? Equally as important, what's your response to this king? Today in Matthew chapter two, we're gonna see three groups of people interact with a king, Jesus, and then have a response to this king. First, we're gonna look at King Herod, then we're going to look at the chief priests and the scribes. Then we're going to look at the wise men. All three of these characters, they meet or interact with or are told about the king in some way, and they have three very different responses. And the goal of today is to see how we relate and how we, how, uh, to compare and contrast our response to Jesus from their responses to Jesus. So, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to start in verse 1, and we're going we're to walk our way through looking at these three characters in mind. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, this is what the wise men said, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. We find two kings in these first two verses, right? It says it right there. First, verse one, we find a king, Herod, and then we find a guy who is born king of the Jews. What's interesting is that one of them is born king and one of them is not. The, the wise men, they didn't say like, where is he who is born who's eventually going to be king of the Jews? What does it say? He's born king. As an infant, this child is the king. And then there's this fake king who was not born king, King Herod. What do we know about King Herod? Um, there's a lot of uh, extra biblical sources on who King Herod was, and he was kind of a uh, little crazy, just to be honest. He was um, ethnically Arab, religiously Jewish, and politically Roman. So his mom adopted the Jewish religion, and so the Romans looked at him, and they're like, oh, hey, you're Jewish, so we'll install you as a puppet king, as a puppet monarch, if you will, to rule over Israel because since you're Jewish, they're not going to kill you since they're Jewish as well. So he was politically, you know, shaking hands and, like, making deals behind people's backs to, be, uh, to like, climb up the ranks politically. Uh, but in Israel, the Jews didn't like him, but they also didn't want to, you know, kill him because he was Jewish and he practiced their religion, all this stuff. He was so paranoid. He was such a paranoid king that he killed multiple of his own wives and multiple of his own children because he thought they were gonna like kill him and, and, and usurp the throne. When he died, this is, um, we don't find this in the Bible, but when he died, there was actually a party 
because he was dead, because everybody was like, oh, thank goodness, King Herod is now dead. So we have this, like, puppet king who's insecure, who's not born king, right? Because he's not born king of the Jews. He's not even Jewish, but religiously he's Jewish. He's not really even Roman, but politically he's Roman. He's just kind of this hodgepodge of, of things, and so he, this, this instills insecurity in him, and so he's, he's in an outrage, and we're going to see next week exactly what, what that looks like, but he's this fake king, this imposter king who's sitting on the throne that should not be on the throne. So we find two kings in verse one and two, King Herod and the ki- this one who is born king of the Jews. We also find the wise men, but hold on to that. We're gonna come back to the wise men last uh, at the end of this text. Um, so Matthew keeps going. Verse three, the wise men go to King Herod. He, they ask him, where's the the born king of the Jews, and then verse 3, when king, there it is again, King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him. So, verse 4, he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. Fake kings will always feel threatened by Jesus. Always. When King Herod, a fake king, heard this, what was his response? Deeply disturbed, agitated, anxious, upset, walls up, guns out. I don't like this. Notice all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him. Now, this isn't only true. Fake kings will always feel threatened by Jesus. It's not only true because of the story. It's also true from experience, right? If you've, you know, been in any sort of relationship at all, like friendship, or you have a sibling, or you had a classmate, or whatever, um, eventually you, you have interacted with a person long enough to know kind of their flaws, and maybe they get a little impatient about this, or maybe they have a little pet sin over here, or like the closer you get to somebody, the more, more flaws you can see in them. Now, uh, I- imagine at the Holy Spirit's prompting you to maybe press into this, and confront lovingly and graciously and patiently, you start to kind of press into that fake king on their heart. What's another name for a fake king? An idol. Idol of their heart. Typically, not always, but typically what's the first response? Defensiveness. Deeply disturbed. Anxious. Outraged. Walls up, guns out. Flip the script. Somebody knows you is getting to see your quirks and idiosyncrasies, starts to see a little bit of impatience, maybe a little bit of pride, maybe some sin. There's a fake king on the throne of your heart. They start lovingly, graciously, patiently pressing in, and the Holy Spirit of the living God either confronts you or the Holy Spirit of the living God through a brother and sister brings that sin to light, exposes the idols of our heart. What's your first response? defensiveness, deeply disturbed, anxious, justify it. Well, that's, that's just, that's just who I am. Well, yeah, but I mean, you should see their, their fake king on their heart because, whew, walls up, guns out. The response of King Herod, the fake king, is one of deep disturbance, insecurities, pride, anger, anxiety. How often is that our first response? When Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart, saying, hey, I, I, I need to sit there on that throne. 
and we usher in, we open the door to these, these sins, these idols, these fake kings, we, we usher them into the throne of our hearts and we sit them there, or we ourselves are sitting there and Jesus is knocking on the door, how do you respond? It seems that King's Her- King, Herod re- King Herod's response is not that different than your and my response. Next, next group of people, we see the chief priests and the scribes. So we see how King Herod responded. Now we look at the chief priests and the scribes. Let's look again at verse four. He assembled all the chief priests and scribes. That exact phrase, chief priests and scribes, is used elsewhere in Matthew from Jesus' own mouth. Maybe if you remember Matthew 16, Jesus said, Jesus is explaining to his disciples, excuse me, he's explaining to his disciples that it's necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the chief priests and scribes, be killed, be raised on the third day. Later in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says the son of man, referring to himself, will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. In Matthew 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Jesus calls them hypocrites. Jesus calls them blind guides. Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. Jesus calls them snakes. Jesus calls them brood of vipers. Right here in chapter 2 is the introduction to one of the, not the, but one of the primary antagonists in the gospel according to Matthew of Jesus. The chief priests and the scribes. What do they do here? Verse 5, they answer Herod. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, verse 6, Bethlehem and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Okay, a couple observations. The chief priests and the scribes knew the answer. Herod says, hey, where's the Messiah going to be born? What do the chief priests and scribes do? They're like, uh, Bethlehem, because that's what, that's what the prophet said. Did they have to go to the library and, you know, check out a book and figure out where the Messiah was going to be born? No. They had almost the entire Old Testament memorized. They spend their ent- entire professional careers writing and rewriting the Old Testament. When somebody asked, where's the Messiah going to be born? They know it. Okay? So that, that we're going to hold on to that. We're going to come back to that uh, later. But, f- but next, verse 6. Depending on your translation, or your copy of the scriptures. Verse six, it might be in quotes, it might be in all caps, it might be in bold, it might be whatever. It's a quote from the Old Testament. And this is just a general good Bible reading skill. Whenever you see in the New Testament, a quote to the Old Testament, you go back and you read it. And this one's from Micah five. To save, to save us some time, you don't have to turn there. This is gonna be on the screen. But this is what Micah five said. This is the answer that the chief priests and the scribes have. Okay, Herod goes, hey, Where's the Messiah going to be born? They immediately say, Micah 5. It says this, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler, there's king language there, over Israel. His origin, his beginnings, is from antiquity, from ancient times. Therefore, what's going to happen is Israel is going to be abandoned until when? Until the time when she who was in labor has given birth. Who was just in labor and just gave birth? Mary. He, this ruler, will stand and will shepherd them in the strength of Yahweh. In the majestic name of Yahweh his God. This is my favorite line. He will be their peace. What a beautiful prophecy 
an absolutely beautiful prophecy. It's a messianic prophecy, right? It's about the Messiah, the Christ, the King. Now, imagine this. You're a first century Israelite, okay? I know you're actually not, but imagine you're a first century Israelite. You're sitting here under the thumb of whose imperial power? Rome. Before that, who was it? Uh, Greece. Before that, you were scattered everywhere. Persia, well, actually in Persia, but then they, they brought you back. Before that, it was Babylon. Before that, it was Assyria. Before that, it was kind of, you also had King, King David and King Solomon, but you only had that for a little bit of time because then there was a civil war and then you were just kind of scattered again. Like, you guys have not had a home. We have not had a home. If you're a first century Israelite, you have not had a home in millennia. You have not had a king. You have not had a ruler. You have not had a shepherd. You have not had land. You haven't had an inheritance. You've had nothing. And you look at, you read Micah 5, what hope would that bring you? Oh, there's going to be a ruler. He's going to be our peace. He's going to stand and he's going to shepherd his people in the mighty name of Yahweh. Yahweh is going to be their strength. You're a chief priest and a scribe. You know this verse. You hear it. Somebody says, a Messiah might be born in Bethlehem. What are you going to do? You're going to get up. You're going to walk five miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and you're going to see what this whole thing's about because this could be the moment that you've been waiting for. And what do the chief priests and scribes not do? They don't get up. They don't walk five miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem and they don't even see if it's a real possibility that there's a Messiah. They know the answer and yet they refuse to worship. How many times have you and I known the answer and refused to worship Jesus? How many times have you sat there? I, I know what the gospel is. And your heart is dead. How many times have we acknowledged God with our lips, but our hearts are far from him? How many times have we been so concerned about being doctrinally and theologically pure and rigorous, and we neglect the very heart of Christ, caring for one another, loving one another, worshiping God? How many times... Have you and I said we are willing to die for Jesus, but we're not willing to live for him, to get up, walk five miles, and worship him? How many times have you and I said Jesus is the Lord of our life, but then we're content with and defensive of the idols and the fake kings on the throne of our hearts? It's no wonder that Jesus' most severe language is towards whom? The chief priests and the scribes. And guys, this this ought to terrify us because not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say? You're gonna say, Lord, Lord, and I'm gonna say, I never knew you, but rather those who hear the words of Jesus and what? Do them, act on them, obey them. Those are the ones who enter the kingdom of heaven. One scholar says this, Living in reckless abandon means risking it all as if Jesus is alive. Worship is risking it all as if Jesus is alive. Who didn't risk it all? The chief priests and the scribes. They didn't risk anything. They're like in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. Is that your and I's posture? Yeah, I know the gospel. I know Jesus. But I'm not going to risk anything. 
not going to change anything. I'm not going to worship any different. I'm not going to give him time of my day. That's the chief priest and the scribe's response to Jesus. So first, we have King Herod. His response is terror and deeply disturbed because he's a fake king sitting on the throne of his own heart. Next, we have the chief priests and the scribes who know the answer and are stuffed up with knowledge but are starving for worship. And then finally, number three, we get some good news. We get the wise men. <clears throat> Let's look at verse seven and eight. Verse seven, then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back um, to me so that I too can go and worship him. Obviously, we know that this is a lie. Herod's trying to deceive. The wise men don't know it at the time, but he keeps going. Verse 9, after hearing the king, there it is again, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. They led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Who had they not seen at this point yet? Jesus. They had not seen Jesus yet, and they're overwhelmed with joy. They know that the star, uh, for some context, they had the book of Moses, Genesis to Deuteronomy, and in Numbers 24, there's a prophecy, and it says, out of you, Jacob, will come a star. He will sh uh, uh, a, a scepter will not depart from his feet, and he will shepherd the people, and he will rule them. So these wise men from the east probably traveled 800 miles, by the way, depending on where they were, scholars' best estimate is 800 miles. So it's funny, the chief priests and the scribes won't even travel five miles, but the wise men travel 800 miles. They see the star, they don't even see Jesus yet, and they're overwhelmed with joy. Let's keep looking at their response. Verse 11, entering the house, by the way, I might spoil some uh, nativity scenes here. The wise men were not at the birth. They were there a few years later. Uh, so they notice how it says house, not, you know, stable or something like that. So when I was a kid, we had a, <laughs> My mom's not here, so I can say this. We had a, uh, a dresser with the nativity scene, and the wise men were there, and I would always take the wise men, and I would, like, move them onto the other side of the room, and she would get really mad at me. And uh, that was it. I was like, but it doesn't say the... I was a chief priest and a scribe. Okay, I, I'll admit that. The wise men are there. They're, they enter the house, right? Verse 11. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they did three things. Falling to their knees, they worshiped him, and they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts. When you see Jesus, how do you respond? When you see Jesus, when you encounter God, do you fall on your knees and worship? Do you open up your treasures? Your treasures. Not like your, you know, side things or the leftovers or your giveaways. Your treasures. And say, Lord, here they are. When you encounter the presence of God through prayer and spirit, do you lose strength in your legs and fall on your knees and worship? That's the wise men response. Now, at least two Old Testament passages are being activated here. At least two. The first is in 1 Kings chapter 10. King David was the uh, second king of Israel. I almost said first. Saul was the first king. 
he was bad. David was the second king. He was a man after God's own heart, but he wasn't allowed to build the temple. His son, King Solomon, built the temple. It was the golden era of the kingdom of Israel. He built the temple. The presence of the Lord came onto the temple. Solomon was rich. He had tons and tons of gold. And in 1 Kings 10, there's this character that uh, gets on the scene. And she's the queen of Sheba, or Sheba, however you say it. And she was... Uh, scholars estimate about 800 miles away in modern-day Saudi Arabia, and she came with all of her uh, caravan and camels and treasures and all this stuff to see the son of David, King Solomon, to see his glory and his splendor, and it says once she saw everything, she presented him with gold and spices, and she said, your God, Yahweh, is God. He is the one true God. So we have this, this foreigner from hundreds of miles away, coming to the son of David, Solomon, seeing the present, the temple, the, 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 the palace, everything, and saying, I'm going to give you my, pre- my presence here, gold and spices. That's the first passage that's being activated. The second passage that's being activated is in Psalm 72. Psalm 72. Uh, it's a psalm about God's Messiah, God's king, God's anointed one. It's this kingly psalm. And what it says multiple times is it says that all kings and all nations are going to bow and worship to him. All kings and all nations are going to bow and worship to him. Who are these wise men? They represent who? They represent Israel? No. They represent the nations. They're from the east. They're hundreds of miles away. And what do they do? They travel and they bow and they worship him. And they give him their gifts. This son of David in Matthew chapter 2, this child in Matthew chapter 2 is the one who is born king. Matthew is claiming that in this story, this toddler from a suburb of Jerusalem, Bethlehem, where David was born, by the way, is the true and rightful king of heaven and earth. In this toddler, in this child that the nations come to, and worship that his own people don't worship is the one in and through whom heaven and earth will be united again. Now the response is ours to make now. Are you going to be like King Herod? Are you going to be like the chief priests and the scribes? Are you going to be like the wise men? Which kingdom do we want to live in? Do we want to live in the kingdom of our own hearts, the kingdom of earth, or do we want to live in the kingdom of, of where heaven and earth overlap, where Jesus is Lord? And so I want, to refl- I want to spend some time in this reflection question, and I want us to ask ourselves, how are you like each of these three characters? How are you like King Herod? Ruling the throne of your own heart, offended and disturbed when Jesus comes knocking on it because you like your own idols. You like yourself on the throne. Next, how are you like the chief priests and the scribes? How, do you, how are you like the person who knows the answer and acknowledges God with your lips, but your heart is far from him, refusing to worship? And then finally, how are you like the wise men? In fact, how, would you, how do you want to be more like the wise men? What are you giving the Lord? How do you worship? When you see Jesus, what's your, what's your response? 
So we've done this a few times. We don't do it often, but we've done this a few times where we sit in a minute or two of silence um, to just let the busyness and the loudness just settle and let the Holy Spirit bring to our mind's eye what he wants to teach us. So right now, we're just going to do that. Um, I'm going to give us maybe two minutes of of silence. It might be awkward, and that's okay. Um, But just pray and ask the Lord to reveal where you're like these characters, and then ask the Lord to, to convict you and to guide you and to lead you. So I'll start with the word of prayer, and then I'll let there be some silence, and then I'll come back and we'll partake of the elements together. Father, we ask right now, Holy Spirit, that you would do surgery on our hearts. You would reveal where we're like Herod, the chief priests and scribes, and the wise men. And God, I give us a joy in worshiping you. Allow us to be like the wise men, overwhelmed with joy, falling on our knees and worshiping you, giving you our best. And this, this next few moments, Lord, we, we just give to you. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you, you would do your work. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Mm-hmm.